0: I'm kidding, but uh, today is week five of our (laughs) 10-week series, Missio Dei, the mission of God, and uh, you guys are in for a a treat next week because uh, we're kind of changing things up a bit. Um, I'm going to be taking a break from the pulpit, and Mike Turner is going to be preaching, and uh, Mike and I have been talking as he's preparing for that. Um, It's going to be a really, really neat day. I'm really excited about what he's got in store, what God has laid on his heart for us, so don't miss next Sunday. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I had an interesting thing happen. Uh, on a Friday night, I decided to go out to Half Price Books and check out their used record, record uh, c- selection. And as I was pulling into the parking lot and pulling into my spot, um, I was kind of turning my steering wheel left to pull into the spot and I swung a little far in the front right corner of my car scraped up against the the back left corner of the car in the spot next to me. And so, you know, like I I heard that little, (laughs) and I was like, "Uh uh-oh. So I get out, I check, and of course I've scratched their car and there's paint missing, and so I grab a note and put my name, my phone number, and explanation of what had happened and left it like on their driver's side on the window there. And uh, 20 minutes later, as I'm looking at records, I get this text. I, I, I looked it up just to be sure. Thank you for leaving the note on my car. It doesn't look major, so don't worry about it. I was like, oh, my gosh. And so I replied back. I was like, are you sure? You know, said a few more things. And they, they simply responded. You could tell they were kind of like, yeah, it's really okay. They, they said, we looked at it. it really, it's fine. And so I was so relieved because here I was thinking, you know, I'm probably going to have to write this person a $500 check or worse, they're going to want to get insurance involved and I've got to deal with all of that headache. But I was relieved because in moments like this where you do something stupid or foolish or you hurt somebody else or damage their stuff, you never know how somebody is going to respond. You never know. How will they respond? That's a question that all of us find ourselves asking from time to time. Maybe you miss a deadline at work, and you wonder if your boss is going to pull you into his office and tell you to pack your things. Seminary students, maybe you show up on the day that your paper is due and you completely forgot, and you wonder if your prof is going to give you an extension or if you're just out of luck. Let's bring it a little closer to home. Maybe you hurt your spouse for the thousandth time, in the same way, and you wonder, are they going to forgive me this time, or have I exhausted every ounce of forgiveness they've got? Life is full of uncertainty, and nothing, in my opinion, one of the things that is one of the worst situations about life is not knowing how somebody is going to respond when I have messed up. What does, what about God? What about God? What do you think happens? How does He respond whenever we fail, when we hurt Him, when we hurt one another? What does God do? What is He going to do? What is God's response to our sin? And why does He respond that way? That's what we're going to talk about today. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel is after Lamentations, which is after Jeremiah if you get to Daniel, you've gone too far, uh, Somebody pull up the blue Bible there and tell me what page Ezekiel 36 is on. 7:24? OK, 724. Not the most popular or common book in the, of the Bible, but a great one nonetheless. So Ezekiel 36. So we're going to look at verses 16 through 38 today, and we'll answer the question, What is God's response to our sin? How does he respond to our sin? And then we'll we'll talk about why he responds that way. So, if you if you've got it pulled up there, we'll we'll, we'll read that here in just just a moment. But uh, I want to pray together before we read this. And then today, because this text is so long, I don't want to make you stand for five minutes. So you can just stay seated as we read today. But let's pray together. God, we are excited to be in your. In, the, in this place of worship, um, together with one another to worship you, to hear from you. Um, Lord, I know that my heart desperately needs to be with you today. I need you to speak your truth into the deepest crevices of my being. And I pray that for, for me and, and these friends of mine that are here today, that you would do just that. Um, they don't need to hear my wisdom, they need to hear your truth, and, and I don't need to hear my wisdom, certainly, I need to hear your truth, and so I ask that you would, would be with me for the next 30 minutes or so, and uh, would you guide my tongue, would you guide my mind, and would you speak to us today, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Ezekiel 36, verse 16 is where we're picking up, um, follow along with me there says this, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name and that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land? But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. So pause with me for just a second. What we just read is Ezekiel is getting God's explanation for why Israel is in the situation that they're in. Okay, so this is past tense. I did this to them because of this. Now, as we look at the next section, he gives, it, he gives Ezekiel a message that he wants him to relay to the people of Israel about the future. Let's look at verse 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people. And I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. That you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord." All right, thank you for hanging with me. Listening to that must have been hard because speaking that was really hard too. All right, so in Ezekiel's day, his audience is the nation of Israel and they are living in exile after the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, had forced them from their homeland. All right, context, everybody, we good? Everybody tracking with that? They're not in their land anymore. They're out living somewhere else. They're in spiritual and political confusion. They don't know who they are, and they don't know what is going on. They are doubting everything that they've ever known about God and about themselves, and Ezekiel comes with this message from the Lord, saying, hold on, your story is not over. Look at verses 16 through 21. I'm going to kind of point, just, we're going to kind of look at a couple of these verses to kind of talk through what God has already done. So, in verse 17, it says, When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. We don't need to really talk about that, but that's about as disgusting of a picture of sin as a God could paint, right? I mean, that's that's gross. That's that's what he's saying. This is what they have done, Okay. And so, what did he do? In verse 18, I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for the idols which which they had defiled it. Okay, in today's Old Testament reading that Kathy read for us, in in Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12, I'm not going to read it again, but basically, God had said, when you get into the land that I'm going to give you, so this was back before they ever entered the promised land. In Deuteronomy 18, he said, You cannot do these specific things. And two of those things were you can't worship other idols and you cannot shed blood. You cannot murder. Okay. Now, why was God so concerned about these two things? First of all, they are detestable to him and his holy character. They're an affront to his righteousness. But secondly, they would prohibit Israel from being a light and a blessing to the nations around them because those nations around them were engaged in these very things. Notice, if if you remember what Kathy read, they were sacrificing their own children in worship. They were killing their kids, okay? And secondly, they were were also running into uh, idolatry, worshiping other other nations that were around them. And he's saying, you can't be what I've created you to be. You can't be this nation by which my blessing travels to the entire world if you live like everybody else, okay? Okay? And so because they lived that way, God kicked them out of their land. That's what we read in verse 19. I scattered them among the nations. They were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. I judged them. So God sent them into exile as a judgment for their sin. It was his outpouring of wrath because they had, a, had done things that were an affront to his holy name that completely defiled his reputation as their God. Friends, when we sin, our sin is a relational thing. We are hurting and damaging our God. We are causing his name to be defiled. We don't just do something wrong. We are completely breaking relationship, completely destroying what is there between us and God and when that happens because God is just because he he is righteous he judges us and he pours out his wrath he judges us and he pours out his wrath that's the first thing we know about how God responds to sin but thankfully that isn't the only response look jump down to verse 24 with me this passage the next part we're going to be reading is from the part where where Ezekiel is now telling Israel what God is going to do He's relaying the message to them. Okay, in verse 24, he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Basically, what God is saying here is he will reconcile them to himself. He is telling Ezekiel to tell Israel, I am going to bring you back to your land and to me. In Colossians 1 19 through 22, we read that God has done the same thing for us who are believers in Jesus. He has reconciled us and brought us back. It says this in Colossians 1, 19 through 22. It says, For in him, talking about Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind... Doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his own body of flesh by his death. So what we see here is that though our sin deserves judgment and though it causes God to pour out his wrath, if we placed our faith in Jesus, what is true is that God dumped his wrath on Christ and he is able to reconcile us through his life, death, and resurrection. And so, in Colossians, we've been reconciled to God, though we were alienated from Him, because Christ's death satisfied God's wrath. So, the second thing we know about God's response to sin is that not only does He judge it and pour out His wrath, He also reconciles us to Himself, those of us who place our faith in Christ. So, what is temporarily the case, the alienation, is brought back, canceled out, we are reconciled to him, just like Israel was going to be. God told Ezekiel that he would bring them back, and he has brought us back. And their story doesn't stop there, though. In verses 25 through 28, I want to read this for us just because it's really, really rich. It's got some good stuff. We see that God even does something better than just reconcile them. Look at this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. So what they can't do, he's going to do for them. They've made a mess. They've defiled themselves. God's going to clean them up. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. So in addition to reconciling Israel, what we see here is that God promises to do three things in the people of Israel. So he's not just going to bring them back physically. Spiritually, he is going to change them, and he's going to do that by doing three things. First of all, he's going to cleanse them from their uncleanness due to their sin. He's going to give them a new heart. And then thirdly and finally, he's going to give them a new spirit by putting his very spirit within them. And what this is going to do is this is now going to enable them to do what they've never been able to do before, obey and honor God. In the past, they completely profaned and defiled his name by their wickedness. And now he's going to basically change the motor, so to speak. He's going to rip out that broken, nasty, defiled heart and replace it with a heart that desires him, that wants to walk with him, a heart that is able to actually obey. And then he does that even more so by giving them his spirit, giving them a connection with him that is, that is enduring. And all of this not only enables them to walk in obedience, but then it, it gives this amazing result. In verse 25 it says, "You shall, 28, I'm sorry, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. You shall dwell in the land. You won't have to live in exile anymore. I will be your God and you will be my people. Our relationship will be forever restored. We will never, ever, ever be separated again. You will not have to live in political and spiritual confusion ever again because I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, what's interesting about this is that God has done the very same thing for us in Christ as well. In today's New Testament reading, Titus 3, 3 3-7, we see almost some of the exact same, I mean, it's almost the same language. Um... Let me find this passage, sorry. Titus, you can just listen to it. I want to read it because it was, it's just really good. Okay, so we, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, But according to his own mercy, catch this, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, God cleansed Israel, gave them his spirit, God washed us and renewed us by his Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, What God told Ezekiel to tell Israel he would do for them, all of us who are in Christ have received that blessing, that promise. We live on this side of the promise. We live on the fulfillment rather than on the promise. And so we see here that because of Jesus, we're cleansed, we're given a new heart, we're given a new spirit. We don't have time to go read all the texts that communicate this, but think about it. When Jesus talks with, with Nicodemus and he tells him that if anyone wants to be forgiven or, or know God, whatever, however he words it there, he says, you must be born again, not of just the flesh, but of the spirit. And that's what that's talking about. We need a new heart. We have to be given a change that we can't form for ourselves, as it says here, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's the message of the gospel. And thankfully, that's the truth. So God doesn't just reconcile us to himself. When we trust in Jesus, we receive the spirit and God transforms us. He changes us. We don't just kind of get, become a better version of ourselves. We become a new person. We go from somebody who is spiritually dead to spiritually alive. We go from somebody who has zero desire to know and honor God to somebody who everything in them wants to know and desire God. We may struggle with that. We still sin, but our heart and our spirit now wants to know God and follow him. That is something that we don't just wake up and decide to do. That is something the spirit does in us. Nobody wants anything to do with God apart from God's work in them by the spirit. But that's still not all. So God, first of all, He judges us and pours out His wrath for our sin. He reconciles us to Himself and He transforms us. But there's more. In this passage, what we, what we see next is that God had another part of His plan for Israel and He also has another part of His plan for us. Go back to Ezekiel with me. We're, uh, we're going to be down in verses 29 I'm going to read we're going to read a few different verses but first of all in verse 29 God begins to to give promises of blessing to Israel. In verse 29, I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and and here's the blessing. And I will I will sorry I'm losing, I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. So not only would God bring them back to their land, not only would he change them from the inside out, he would cause their land to flourish and to, he would bless their very crops and produce. They would never again face famine. Jump down to verses 33 and 34 with me. We'll see the next stage of his blessing. He says, on that day I cleanse you from all your iniquities. I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. So not only is he going to bless their crops, he's going to rebuild their cities. He's going to actually take his blessing to that next level, and it's not just going to be on the things that are earthen and organic and natural, the things that they do, the efforts that they are engaged in, God is going to bless and he's going to extend his, his favor even on their commerce and their things when it comes to their city. And then finally, if you jump down to verse 37 and 38, God is going to bless them, I think, in the most significant way of all. Verse 37 says, This also I will let the house of Israel, ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. So first of all, you have to catch that he says, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. Evidently, what had been going on for years is that Israel had been asking for God to do things for them, and he was not responding because they were under his judgment. They were in exile, and God had chosen for a little while what you need, what I think is best for you, what I know is best for you, is you just need to kind of be over here and reap some of the the fruit of your sin. You need to go over here and experience that what you do is not just a small deal. You have completely defiled and profaned my name. And so we're going to kind of put you in timeout, so to speak. And I don't want to soften this. This is a much bigger than that. But we're going we're to put you over here, and you're going to reap some of those consequences. But here, he says, not only am I going to bring you back, not only am I going to change you from the inside out, I'm going to bless your land, I'm going to bless your cities, and I'm going to open my ear once again to your cries. I'm going to listen to you. When you ask me things, I'm going to hear it, and I'm going to do that. And so he says, I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them to increase their people like a flock. So when they ask, basically what he's getting at is they're going to come back from, from exile and there's going to be a smaller number of people. People, you know, they get bruised and beat up and all kinds of other things while they're out there. It's kind of a smaller group of people and they're going to arrive back and they're going to go, man, we really don't have very many of us. We need some more folks to be able to sustain ourselves here. And then he says in verse 38, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Now, we don't know what it was like to be in Jerusalem at a time of feast when they were making sacrifices, but can you imagine how many sheep and lambs showed up whenever thousands upon thousands of people were making sacrifices? If you've ever been in a crowded place like Times Square or, I don't know, what's that place in London, Piccadilly Circus or whatever, I forget the name of that place that's got all the crazy flashing lights and screens, but those places where it's like just you're surrounded by people and the noise of the chatter of people talking, imagine what it must have been like for them on a day of sacrifice when the city is just full of sheep baying and making all kinds of ruckus. He kind of taps into that auditory sense and remember, even though they're in exile and they're far from those days, God says, hey, you remember those days whenever all you could hear was sheep and you just wanted them to shut up. I'm going to fill your land with people like the sheep that were on that day. You're not going to come back and be this little tiny clan. I'm going to bless you and you're going to grow and I'm going to cause you to multiply. And here's what's beautiful about that. What that also tells them is the very covenant that that God had made with their father, their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abram, to bless them and cause them to multiply, that that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky. God would complete that mission. He would be faithful to them, and everything that they had ever received as a promise, they could know God will be true to his word. Now, For those of us who are in the church, God's promises and his blessings for us are true. They're just a little different. God's promises to us aren't necessarily that we'll be like a flock of sheep. Um, In Ephesians 1, 3, it says this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So our blessings are more spiritual in nature than physical in nature. We have been restored to God. We will spend forever with him. Right now, we already possess eternal life. Let me read another text for us real quick. In Romans 8, it says this. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. This is the the part I want you all to, to hear how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things. Friends, what happened when we place our faith in Jesus, when we trusted in him as Lord and Savior, God puts us in Christ and we become co-heirs with Christ. We are adopted into God's family. And nothing can change that. And God, from that moment forward, gives us everything that He has. There's not anything worth any value. There's nothing that God owns, nothing that God possesses that He doesn't share with us as His children. The only thing He doesn't share is His own glory. And I'm kind of giving away the next part of the sermon. (laughs) But uh, so what we see here is that God doesn't just judge us and pour out his wrath. He doesn't just reconcile us, and he doesn't even stop with transforming us. God also blesses us. That's his fourth response to our sin, as he blesses us in spite of the fact that we've profaned and defiled his holy name. Why does God do this? Why does he choose to be so merciful and gracious? Look at verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O Lord, oh, sorry, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. Jump down to verse 32. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. In both of these verses, God says the exact same thing. It is not for your sake. So God didn't reconcile, transform, and bless Israel for their sake, and God doesn't reconcile, transform, and bless us for our sake. Before we get the answer, we get the answer, why not? So God doesn't do this. His ultimate reason for restoring the nations, restoring his people to himself has nothing to do with us. Now, in some of the circles of evangelicalism, the one that I happen to grow up in, you get this idea kind of growing up that, you know, God saved us because we are so worth it to him. Like, oh, we're just so valuable that he just had to have us. But I don't think that's what the case is. God isn't like, oh, no, what will I do if I don't have Israel? God isn't like, oh no, what will I do if I don't have Jeremiah? What will I do if I don't have Lexi? Woe is me, I need these people. God's not in stitches wondering what's going to happen if he doesn't have us. But he's not either primarily, he's not, neither is he primarily motivated by our dire situation. Sometimes we think that God saves us because we were just in such a bad spot that he just felt so compassionate that he had to do something. I don't think God's primary motivation for saving us is something like, oh, my judgment is just too much for them. They can't handle this, so I guess I'll just have to revoke my wrath that I've poured out. This just isn't fair. I believe God knows that his judgment and his wrath is completely unbearable. But the testimony of the scriptures is that it is exactly just. We deserve every ounce of judgment and wrath that God would send our way. problem is that we live in a day and an age when people want to make a big deal out of humanity and a really small deal out of God. But the testimony of the scriptures from start to finish is that this book and everything else, all of creation, is not centered around humanity. This is not the story of humanity. God's work of restoration is not for us. It's not ultimately for us. But if God doesn't restore us for us, why does God restore us? I mean, if it's not really about you and me, what is it all about? Jump back to verse 21 with me. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Look at verse 22. After saying, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, what does he say? But for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. See, God restored Israel for the sake of his holy name. His greatest concern, his ultimate motivation is vindicating his own character and reputation among the nations that Israel had defiled and profaned while living there with their sinful ways. So we need a little bit of a, a, a cultural lesson maybe, or a reminder if, we, if, if this is something you're aware of. Today, none of us feel intrinsically tied to the plot of land that we own or rent. I have zero long-standing, like, if I move, I'm not going to grieve the fact that 12916 Jason Crest Trail is no longer mine. There's no spiritual, there's no ancestral, there's no connection to the plot of land that Lexi and I live on. But in Israel's day, the land that you lived in was a big deal because it was believed that it was yours because of the God who had given it to you. And so there was spiritual connections all over the place with the land. And that's why we read all of this stuff, how he says they had defiled the land and they had defiled God's name. And so in this connection of Israel being exiled by God sending them out of his land, It caused his name, his very reputation in the ancient world to be called into question. What did they say in verse 20? These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land? Here's the problem. When Israel sinned and were exiled, what the nations around them thought was Yahweh, that that God of Israel, he's not a faithful God. He kicked his people out of the land he gave them. At the same time, they also thought he's not very powerful if he can't keep his people in the land. He's not very strong. He's a loser God. So God's restoration for Israel is about clearing his reputation among Israel's neighbors, proving that he really is the one true God, that he really is faithful and sovereign. He wants them to know that he really, really is the only God. Why? Look at verse 23. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Look at verse 36. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord, I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. And then, verse 38, very last sentence in this entire section. Then they will know that I am the Lord. God, God restores Israel so that the nations will come to worship him. God does all of this the judgment, the wrath, the blessing the reconciling, the transforming, every ounce of it is motivated by his mission for all the nations to worship him. God is a theocentric God. He is a God-centered God because it only makes sense for him to be a God-centered God. The minute that God is ultimately concerned or motivated by something else, he ceases to be God and becomes like the creation that he has created. For us... It makes sense for us to be focused on something outside of us, to be focused on God because he is God. For God, it makes sense for him to be focused on himself because he is God. If he focuses on anything else, making it ultimate, he ceases to be God. Are you tracking with me? So it would be entirely inappropriate and wrong for you and I to be self-centered. For God, there's no other way for him to be because he is at the center of it all. He is the one everything... Points to and exists for, all of creation is for Him, and so it's not wrong, it's not sinful, it's not wicked for God to be self-centered. It's actually exactly what it means to be God, but He does it in a way where He's merciful and He's gracious and He blesses and He reconciles and He transforms, and so we see that His character is good. It's not a bad kind of jealousy. It's not a bad kind of self-centered. It's a righteous, gracious concern for his name this is a pew clearing kind of sermon (laughs) God restores us for his holy name among the nations and thank God he does because you and I would not be partakers of the divine blessings you and I would not be here on October 12th 2014 worshiping his name if he didn't do this because we are not his people Unless you happen to be a Jew, you are not somebody who was a partaker of his promises until God chose to bless the nations and to send Christ to make that happen. So let's thank God that he's this way. Let's thank God that he's motivated by being worshipped among the nations because it's for our good. It's for our good. This is a great thing. So what does this mean for us? I'm going to wrap up here. I'm going a little long. What does this mean for us in 2014. First of all, I think it means that we've got to trust that God has reconciled us in Jesus. Trust that God has reconciled us in Jesus. Now, some of us, we don't think we need to be reconciled to God. There are people, maybe, maybe one of us today, who believe that our, first of all, maybe we don't believe that we're sinners, or secondly, we believe that our sin's just not a big deal. Oh, this defiling of God's name, what are you talking about? That's not really anything to worry about. But the reality is that we are all sinners and our sin causes us to fall under God's judgment and wrath. Our sin is a big deal and it completely severs us from God. On the flip side, there are other, others of us who may think that we're too bad. We're so far gone that we're beyond the reach of God's restoration. <laughs> we believe there's no way that he could actually forgive us because we got so many skeletons. We're hauling a U-Haul full of skeletons. And so we think, yeah, that's nice for somebody else, but that could never mean anything to me. Either side of that makes a mockery of what Jesus did on the cross. If you think that you don't need his grace, you completely trample under his perfect and righteous blood under your feet because you're like, well, that's not for me. But on the flip side, if you think it's not powerful enough and not strong enough to forgive you, then you basically say it's useless and not for me either. So either one is just equally, in in opposite ways, a mockery of who Jesus is and what he's done. You need the cross, and it covers you. There's nobody in here who doesn't need it, and there's nobody in here who's beyond the reach of grace because of what Jesus has done. So trust God has reconciled you because of Jesus. Others of us today, maybe our doubt or maybe our hang-up is on this area that God is transforming us. Maybe you look at your life, and you see the same sin patterns that you saw 10 or 20 years ago. Maybe when you examine your heart, you see the same lust, the same pride, the same insecurity, the same greed, the same idolatry that has been there for a long time. You read the passage about the dog returning to its vomit, and you're like, you might as well call me Fido. If you are in Jesus, no matter how small the steps of your sanctification have been, and no matter how slow that process is going, the reality is that God is transforming you. Whether you see it or not, whether you feel it or not, if you are in Jesus, God is changing you. My encouragement to you today is to ask somebody else and to get an outside perspective so that you don't give up on your journey home. Don't grow weary. The last thing God wants you to do is to feel sorry for yourself or to feel like you don't measure up. The gospel frees us from that. And the reality of what Jesus has done is that God is changing you. Be it small, be it slow, He is changing you. And He has promised to finish what He started. Trust that God is transforming you because of Jesus. And finally, Last category, there are some of us in here today that really doubt that God blesses us. We really doubt that he's got in his plan good things for us. Some of us don't think that we deserve it. We don't think we deserve any gifts from God, and so we don't think he's going to give them to us. Well, we're right. We don't deserve it, but we don't understand the character of God if that's what we believe. Because God doesn't operate on the basis of merit, thank the Lord. He operates on the basis of grace. And so if you're in here doubting if God wants good things for you, if he wants to bless your life, look at the cross and remember Romans 8. The God who did not spare his own son, will he not graciously give us all things? That's God's heart. On the other side of that, I think there are some of us who don't believe that God blesses us because we doubt God's goodness. We're like Israel And we have our hearts set on all kinds of idols. And so some of us don't think we deserve good things. Some of us think God's blessing is something other than God. We've set our heart, we've set our affections, we've set our mind, our eyes on something other than him. And so we're living in rampant idolatry, thinking that he's not good because he won't give us our idol. So maybe we don't worship some foreign god. Maybe we don't sacrifice our kids on an altar to another god but we have other idols all the same. Some of us see people who have clothes that we don't have and we want their clothes. Some of us see somebody's house that's bigger than ours or in a part of town that isn't ours. This is a little too close to home for me. And we get convicted because we realize that our heart is set on a box with a roof. Or some of us set our hearts on a new car or... Maybe our heart is set on the affection of somebody else. Maybe we're so wrapped up in making sure that our spouse thinks we're the greatest thing in the world or that our kids worship and adore us that in the process our heart has gotten completely warped and wrapped up into idolatry by elevating something else above God. What we need to realize is that those things are not the source of good. Those things are not the source of blessing. God and God alone is. And what we need to hear today is that God has promised to bless you, but he's promised to bless you in himself and in his gifts, not all of these trinkets and toys. So trust God will bless you all because of Jesus. And finally, the last thing I believe this text calls us to do is to live for God's holy name among the nations. To live for his holy name among the nations. So that might look differently for you, and it might look differently for me, but regardless of who you are, and what your scenario is, there's a question that I believe we all are called to ask. God, how do you want me to live for your holy name among the nations? God, how do you want me and my family to reflect your image, your goodness, your righteousness, your mercy? How do you want us to reflect it at our work, in our schools, on our street, everywhere we go? How do you want me to be a representative of your great name. How can I, how can my family join you in taking the love and good news of Jesus across the world? What does that look like for you? Are you asking that question? Does your family pray for the nations? Do you give so that the nations will receive the gospel? Are you actively engaged in joining God in his mission to make worshipers among the nations. That is a question that is not okay to dismiss. When we come face to face with our Lord, you are going to want to have processed that question and to invited him in and asked him to work in your heart. And that's convicting for me, it's convicting for you. And I'm just bringing it up because I know that when all is said and done, we're going to want to be involved in that. God judges us. He pours out his wrath for sin. Thank God he poured it out on his son and we do not have to receive that by faith in him. God reconciles us to himself through Jesus. He transforms us as he gives us the spirit and works in our lives and he blesses us. He does all of this, not for us, but for the sake of his holy name among the nations. The question is, will you trust God has reconciled you in Christ? Will you trust God is transforming you by the work of the Spirit? And will you trust that God desires to bless you, that he will bless you because you are his son, you are his daughter in Christ? And finally, will you live for God's glory, for his holy name among the nations? Let's pray. Lord, we need your mercy and we need your grace because who we are and what our hearts are set upon apart from your Spirit's work is nothing that lasts. We get caught up and we get wrapped up in everything else unless you work in us and change us. Thank you that for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, you have reconciled us to yourself. Thank you that you are transforming us by the work of your spirit inside of us. Thank you that you bless us with every spiritual blessing that you share all things with us. Would you help us to appreciate these things and then turn around and live in such a way so that the nations from our neighborhood, to the other side of the world, would come to know you and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.